So brewing beer dates back more than 5,000 years, and over its long history, there have been a lot of developments in the brewing process. The oldest beer recipe that we have in writing is from ancient Sumeria in 1800 BC. The recipe is actually in the form of a hymn, and the hymn was written to the goddess of beer, whose name was Ninkasi. It was written in order for the recipe to be passed down from generation to generation. And this was really important because beer was used as a form of pavement. Um, The fermentation process was used to get potable water. There was just a lot of importance around beer. And while they used to use things like baskets, today's brewers are able to use more advanced technologies to aid them in their brewing process. Anyway, so today I want to talk to an old colleague of mine, Sean Miller, and we're going to chat a little bit about chromatography and the role that that plays in the brewing process. So, Sean, do you want to introduce yourself, talk about what you do a little bit to start? Yeah, sure. So, uh, my name's Sean. Um, I'm currently uh, working at Victory Brewing Company. Uh, I've been there for oh, about seven months now but I have a a long string of jobs before that. Uh, (laughs) I started out as an analytical chemist in a contract lab testing pharmaceuticals, and there I ran uh, a variety of tests, probably 90% of them. uh, I tested pharmaceuticals like on HPLC, then about 10% of the time on like UV Viz. So I think through your time kind of working around beer, and maybe you can expand on this a little bit. The basic components we know are malts, water, yeast, and hops. How do we take those four things and get to beer? So you've got all this malted grain. They start off with uh, the barley, and they they allow it to start to germinate, and then they stop it. Uh, then they dry it out, and then we get that malted barley at the brewery. And that'll go through a mill, which will crush it, and it'll go into a mash tun where we mix it with warm water. And there's where those enzymes that were created during the malting process will convert the uh, complex carbohydrates into simpler sugars so that the yeast can eat them. Then in the louder tun, it's kind of like a, a colander for for the mash tun. So you can strain out all of the, the pieces of the barley, and then you rinse off those pieces of the barley, and then all that liquid will go into the kettle where you'll boil it. And then in the kettle, you'll add um, your hops at uh, different points in the process to get bitter uh, bitterness added and uh, different flavors and different aromas. And then once, once it's done with that, it'll go into the whirlpool. And the whirlpool helps it so you get a cleaner product. Uh, into the fermenter. So if you have all these uh, different proteins and hot matter and that goes into the fermenter, it'll get, uh, you'll just get some really weird flavors. <laughs> and so that goes out. So the product that you're sending to the fermenter then is wort. You know, it's sticky and kind of viscous-ish. It's a lot thicker than, than beer is because those sugars are making the beer uh, more dense. Right. So that's sort of the anatomy of the brew house that you're kind of spelling out for us there before the yeast gets to the sugars. Right. And at what steps in that process can we use technology to aid us? Well, we can start in the in the mash tun, and there we can once the those uh, the malted barley will convert the complex carbohydrates into simple sugars. Right at the end of that process, before we transfer it to the louder tun, we can 
grab a sample and run that on the HPLC and kind of get a, uh, we can get the concentrations of the sugars and the proportions those sugars are in. Um, we do have to remember that they will change throughout the process a bit, um, but it's a good, that's a good spot to get the process control uh, point there. So it's your like initial check. Well, then we go into the latter ton um, and you can get your uh, mash profile or your uh, laddering profile. So you have your first runnings, which is the like most concentrated uh, wort at that point of sugars. And you can get all your um, sugars there. And then at the very end, when you're rinsing the grain, you can again get your uh, the sugar profile on that. And sort of the last spot uh, that you would really need to to worry about is once you're it's called knocking out when you're putting the beer from the whirlpool into the fermenter before you add your yeast. Uh, you want to grab a sample from there too and get your sugar profile. And then you kind of have like all the major process points um, and and what your sugars are doing across. All, the, all your brew house. So each brew house has efficiencies um, with each of its vessels. Um, and those efficiencies are different. It's based on dimensions, uh, grain bed thicknesses, uh, you know, even like how well you can sparge. Uh, there's just boatloads of differences between two brew houses. So when you double a recipe, um, there's you know, not until you brew on that system, there's no way to calculate for that, those efficiencies. So um, instead of brewing just tons and tons and tons of batches trying to get it right, you can run the, the sugars on an HPLC and be like, all right, this is what we're, you know, this is what we're getting. You yeah. don't have to wait till the end of your fermentation to take a whole bunch of measurements. Like you get uh, repeatable results quickly uh, out of the brew house instead of waiting. I like all of these you know, sort of math and science terms you're using. It shows how brewing is really just industrial chemistry, um, but it's a cool topic that we like to talk about too. So I know that when it comes to measuring gravity, and when I say measuring gravity, we're talking about measuring the carbohydrates in the wort. There's a couple of ways to do this, and I was wondering if you could walk through those ways because, you know, some people do total gravity with a refractometer and others are using HPLC if they can afford to do that. But what are sort of the benefits and what's the difference between those two methods? Yeah, those, those, are, those are pretty much the bookends of the spectrum. Um, you know, you could do things like when, and when people homebrew, they use the hydrometer, which kind of measures the density of the beer. So uh, a refractometer is nice because it's super cheap and super easy to use. So you can have the brewers standing on their, plat their platform above their kettle. They can grab a sample from their mash or their kettle and put it on there and, um, you know, get their number really quickly. It's easy to read. It's super cheap. It's great. And so the one of the biggest downfalls, though, of uh, that is you don't, well, you don't get to separate out which sugars you have, but you once as soon as that beer starts, well, the wort starts to ferment, your the refractive index is going to be thrown off a ton by the the alcohol in there. So you can only take that measurement on the hot side of brewing. But then, um, sort of the way to know what sugars are in your beer and be able to quantitate individual sugars, you need HPLC to do that. HPLC is the only way to get those individual sugars. So, Sean, why are sugars important in the brewing process? So, sugars are the food for yeast. 
Um, so the yeast are, you know, they're not sitting there going, oh, I like to make beer. You know, they're just trying <laughs> to live and do their thing. So when you give them uh, sugar, they are taking those sugars, converting it into energy. And so since there's not uh, after a certain point in the, fer- uh, the process of fermenting beer, there's no more oxygen. They go and start producing ethanol, which is the alcohol that we all love. Nice. So yeast are sort of like humans in a way, right? Except while yeast isn't necessarily saying, ooh, let's make beer, we are. (laughs) Right, exactly. Why is it important to look at each of these individual sugars? Does, you know, is the yeast eating them differently? Like, what's the benefit to doing this for a brewery? Yeah, so um, so yeast, they they process each of the sugars differently. Uh, Glucose, is like red 40 dyes for kids. It's like Kool-Aid. For glucose. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, exactly. It's Kool-Aid for kids, and they just go nuts. They bounce off the walls. They're going crazy. They're fermenting. <laughs> I um, can picture this perfectly. You had that single sugar in, in the wort. Like you just way over-converted. You're going to have no body in your beer, and it's just going to be really alcoholic, and um, it's not going to be super awesome. And then there's maltotriose that... Uh, that they have to have sort of an energy store of the other sugars uh, in there to even be ready to take off that maltotriose. Um, and that's sort of the like, like sort of like, I don't know, kind of like the little engine that could. They're just like the yeast are chugging along on these maltotriose. Like, <laughs> I think I can, I think I can. And they're just chugging through it um, towards the end of the fermentation. It definitely uh, takes them a little longer to process those. So each of those um, types of sugar change the fermentation curve. So is it fair to say that yeast is kind of like me going towards a soccer game and I have a choice between like a candy bar and pasta and I'm going to metabolize those differently? Yeah, that's a really good analogy. You know, there's a, a variety of things that could go wrong within the fermentation process, but you may have some fermentables left over uh, in, the, uh, in the fermenter. So... What you need to do is, uh, if you have an HPLC, you can see which sugars those are. So if you have glucose in the end of your fermentation, you've got, or maltose, any of the small sugars besides maltotriose, you're going to have big problems. You're going to know you didn't have very healthy yeast because they love those small sugars. Um, But if you have more maltotriose, you may just not have the most healthy yeast in the world, or maybe you just slightly underpitched and it, they didn't quite grow up enough. Um, and by underpitched, you mean you just didn't add enough yeast there to eat it all up? Right. So they just never, you, you didn't have enough yeast to start. They didn't keep on growing. So you didn't have, um, you know, a lot of little workers, you know, um, what's that phrase? Um, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time kind of thing. Like, <laughs> I've never heard that ever. <laughs> Pretty sure you just made that up. You know, many hands make light work, you know, so you have all okay. those yeast and it's, you know, they, they metabolize um, all to try slowly. So having a lot of them there, uh, they'll be able to, to get through all that maltotriose. That makes sense. So, is looking at these sugars a pretty routine analysis, or is there a certain time in a brewery's life where they really need to hone in on each of these individual sugars? 
Um, it's it's not a very routine thing. It, it's routine when you would be commissioning a new brew house uh, and you're trying to have a new brew house match your old brew house and uh, sugar profiles so you can get, a, you know, a consistent beer. Um, or when you have, like, big problems with fermentation in the brewery, it's like the first thing you go to, okay, this, this beer ended at a really high gravity do we have fermentables or don't we have fermentables? Um, because all those other instruments that I talked about just basically give you a density number, not necessarily are what sugars are in there. So when you're commissioning a new and bigger brew house, it's not like doubling my lasagna recipe. I just can't add twice the ingredients and get the same result? Right. Each, each piece in the brew house has their own efficiencies um, associated with them. You know, if you have different different makes, different sizes, uh, efficiencies go in there, whether you have um, different types of boilers in your kettle even will, will change things. Um, you know, if you have uh, one, one brew house may scorch your wort, which will create uh, caramelization reactions, which will take away some of your sugars, you know, where your other brew house didn't. And so with the HPLC, you'd be able to see a decrease in your sugars from your uh, loudering process to your knockout uh, when you're sending uh, wort to the fermenter. Cool. And I, you know, at the beginning, I kind of opened this with the story of Ninkasi and how, you know, ancient Sumerians used this to pass their beer recipe down. If I'm kind of translating this to modern day, where's the guidance for this type of testing coming from? Are there, you know, Obviously, I don't think we're singing hymns anymore about how to test our beer and get reproducible results. But is there any guidance? Um, what are brewers going to to find out how they can do these analyses? You know, the craft brewery came out of, um, you know, sort of rebelling against the big guys. Nice. You know, but <laughs> one of the things that the big guys have done was create a culture of very consistent product. And so even though the consumer doesn't necessarily want the flavor profile of the larger brewer. Um, they still want that consistency. Um, and so one of the ways that you can do that is make sure you're reproducible in the brew house. And um, one of the major uh, things in the brew house that's like really variable is that mash ton. And so if you can get that under control and know that you're producing the same sugar profile each time, um, you know, you're going to get that is one big step in the process that you're going to be able to uh, control your quality at. And, you know, I think the other one is, you know, it's, it's also consumer driven, but people that they want new and unique styles. And so being able to have a recipe, do that recipe and show that your sugar profile is one that's not going to give you like a ridiculous fermentation. Um, you know, that, that's going to help. So another interesting thing uh, with chromatography, you know, so we don't just use liquid chromatography in breweries. We use uh, gas chromatography in breweries, too. Um, there's a, like, huge array of things that we can test for that. But one of the most important things is uh, testing for diacetyl. What's diacetyl? Uh, diacetyl is a, a, it's an off flavor that is produced by yeast during fermentation. Uh, they produce this off flavor. Um, when they're making amino acids, 
And so it's what happens. It goes out there when the beer is young because they're producing amino acids while they're growing. And then later in the process, they'll reabsorb that diacetyl uh, and turn it into something else that has a way higher flavor threshold. Like when you walk into a movie theater, that's exactly what the, the pure compound diacetyl smells like. Or if you're a big wine fan, uh, Chardonnays tend to have that buttery uh, smell and flavor, and that's diacetyl. Um, one of the really cool things about the gas chromatograph for that is uh, each beer has its own uh, sort of fingerprint between diacetyl and another compound that's similar, um, pentane dione. So each beer will have a specific ratio of those two things once it's done fermenting, and you can tell yeast health by that ratio, and you can see if there's even uh, a bacterial uh, contamination within the beer because that ratio will be different. That diacetyl peak will be much larger uh, than it normally is. So you can use it for flavor and aroma analysis and sort of a double check if there's a possibility of uh, contamination of bacteria in your beer. Awesome. I've heard tale of this instrument called a olfactory GCMS or something like that, where literally as you're looking at these volatile compounds, you can sniff a nose piece and smell it as it comes out. Have you done that? Oh, I haven't. I have (laughs) friends who have. um, I know that, um, well, I know Firestone Walker at one point was looking at at getting one of those, and they also, they'll, they'll do that, and then they'll do even their auto samplers are really crazy on that. So they were looking to get it. It's a, called a twister auto sampler. Huh. So there's like no sample prep at all, just filtration like the HPLC. But then you put it in a vial with a stir bar. And this stir bar <laughs> has, uh, has a special polymer coating on it that will grab flavor and aroma compounds. You'll, and then you'll stick that stir bar uh, into the auto sampler. And that it does a thermal desorption. And then you can run that through the GC column, separate all your, your uh, compounds, and then as they're coming off the column, you can smell them, but then they shoot them through a time-of-flight detector um, to get, like, incredibly small or incredibly low detection uh, on that. So they can smell compounds, quantitate, and identify uh, those flavor and aroma compounds. I'm just sort of blown away right now at how kind of detailed and how far we've come in being able to test the aromas, the taste, the fermentation, all these different things about our beer. It's it's kind of amazing to sit back and hear you talk about, you know, all of these small little factors that go into this beverage that's so widely enjoyed. Yeah, it's really funny how you can be so in the weeds for for science, you can actually make people's eyes glaze over when you're talking about beer. (laughs) Yeah. You can make beer more exciting or even maybe a little bit more boring for some that aren't so scientifically inclined. Yeah. I've done it once or twice. (laughs) (laughs) We're fortunate today to be able to use these modern laboratory techniques such as chromatography or PCR to almost exactly replicate an an even wider variety of beers. While the Sumerians used the Hemden and Kasi as a way to pass down this recipe, we're able to use these new technologies in testing beer as an ode to the magic of the brewing process. 
This podcast is an original creation of Biorad Laboratories. Biorad is a trademark of Biorad Laboratories Incorporated in certain jurisdictions. All trademarks mentioned herein are the property of their respective owner.